Well, it is our custom as a church to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of each month. And uh, particularly when the first Sunday of the month falls on the first Sunday of the year, it's a, an important thing for us to do. Every communion, you might have heard me say in the past, is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a, a sign given to us to remember the covenant relationship that we have as individuals and as a church with God. So it's a point for our benefit, not God's, our benefit in which we renew our commitment, we reaffirm our commitment to relationship with God and to obedience to God. So in the first Sunday of the year, I've uh, used the title the last two or three years, Covenant Renewal uh, Celebration, as a time when we can individually reflect on our hearts and the state of our hearts and commit ourselves and our families to God. And this is a passage that can help us to do that. It talks about communion. Now, you need to know, in this book, in the next chapter, chapter 11, he goes in detail into the subject of the celebration of communion and corrects some things that they were doing in their church. This passage that was read to us is not really about communion. It's about a different subject, and he refers to communion in trying to clarify the subject. Just momentarily, let me explain that Chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians are answering a question. In the book, he's simply answering questions that they gave to him. And chapter 8 begins with these words, now concerning food that has been offered to idols. And you might think there's nothing farther from my mind, my thought, my experience, than food offered to idols. But this was a burning question among Christians in the early church. And the reason was that they were in a society in which there were temples uh, around them in Corinth, and people customarily went to the pagan temples and offered a sacrifice in order uh, to celebrate any number of things, birthdays, anniversaries, job promotions, whatever it was. They might go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and invite their friends and relatives to come and enjoy a communal meal with them. And they, they had questioned, now that we've become Christians, is that something we can do? And, and what Paul does is he goes in great detail to break down the answer to that question. Using the Old Testament and logic, he, he breaks into two sections, two, two ideas. He says, well, there's really two questions involved there. The first one is, can you eat food that has been offered to an idol? For example, is it permissible for a Christian to go to the marketplace and there would be a place there in, in Corinth where they would be selling meat in the meat market that had been offered to an idol. And it was from the temple, and they were simply selling it to recoup uh, costs uh, to use in temple worship and so forth. Was it permissible to eat food that had been offered to an idol? Or was the food in some way tainted by its association with idolatry? And Paul answers that question in chapter 8 and says, yes, it is permissible. Now, we're grateful for that because what it means today is that when we go and we buy meat, we don't have to know anything about the person who slaughtered the meat. We don't have to ask, were they a Christian or a non-Christian? You know, what's their moral state? Anything like that. As long as the meat is pure, it's not tainted in some way by having been handled by the hands or used for a purpose that is not godly. But... He says there's really a second question involved that's quite different, and that is, can a Christian go to the temple when he's invited and participate in the meal of food that has been offered to an idol? 
And that one's more difficult, and it's this passage towards the end of the whole discussion where he essentially answers the question. He gives an unqualified no. That's what he means in the first sentence. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. You judge what I'm saying. And then he uses an illustration from the Lord's Supper and from pagan sacrifice and from the nation of Israel. He uses this to demonstrate that it is not wise for a Christian to go to a worship activity to a false god. Now, none of that has anything to do precisely with communion, but in this passage, he says some things about communion, and that's what we want to look at. It tells us that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, three things happen at the same time. It's like it points in three different directions, the bread and the cup. For those of you who don't know, what the celebration of communion is, is it's a reenactment of something Jesus did on the last night of his life. In the last night of his life, he uh, celebrated the Passover meal, which is still done among the Jewish people. And the Passover meal once a year was a meal that involved about a four-hour experience of worship for a family or a, a larger extended family. They would meet together, and there's actually a form of worship that they go through in which the children ask questions that are answered by the parents and the head of the household and so forth. But what Jesus did was at the Last Supper that he celebrated with his disciples, his apostles, in, the, in an upper room in Jerusalem. What he did was during the Passover meal, there were two distinct points that he drew an element out of the Passover liturgy, and he said, this is now going to have different significance. And they were the bread, a loaf of unleavened bread that the head of the family would break at the beginning of the meal after giving thanks and pass. That would like initiated the meal formally. And then at the end of the meal, a cup of wine that was drunk. Now, in the Passover liturgy, there are four cups of wine. You don't picture one person drinking four cups of wine. There are four cups of wine over a four-hour period that are shared among all of the participants being passed from one to another. And the third one is called the cup of blessing. It's the cup uh, that closes off the meal. They break the bread and pass it. The meal commences and all of the things go on during the meal, the eating of the food as well as certain conversation. But then at the end, the host takes a cup of wine and he gives a specific blessing and he refers to it as the cup of blessing and passes it to the people. And what Jesus did at the Last Supper was he took those two elements out, the bread and the cup, and he said, these will now be signs that point to my death on the cross as the fulfillment of the new covenant. So what we do is in reenactment of that, we take bread and the cup. Now, in our case, we use grape juice. In the New Testament, it's called the fruit of the vine. It was wine. Few people would argue that it's not wine. It was wine. However, because it's called the fruit of the vine, not technically called wine, we believe that we're free to use grape juice. So for the sake of those who have trouble uh, with alcohol, we simply use grape juice in the celebration of communion. But we, we take bread and grape juice and we, through prayer and faith, set it aside. And it becomes for us as we share in it like a reenactment of what happened on that last night of Jesus' life. Now, in this passage, he refers to communion three times. And there's a word that he uses. It's the word in Greek, koinonia. You may have heard that. Koinonia. It basically means fellowship, 
but it can be translated communion. In fact, in the King James Version, that's how it is translated. It is not the cup of blessing that we bless. A communion in the blood of Christ, it says, and it's from those words that people draw the word communion to refer to this activity. Um, he, he refers to fellowship as communion. It can also be translated participation, as it is in this Bible. It can be translated sharing. But it's the basic idea of sharing together with someone in something. And it's meant to point to a personal experience. Not just, for example, eating food, but eating food that points you to a personal, heartfelt experience. And that's what communion is. And this says it points in three directions. It gives us uh, something that relates to our relationship with each other. It, It is an experience that is meant to point us to salvation, our relationship with Christ and what he did on the cross, and it is something that points us to Christ himself. I want to think about those three things. I'm going to take them out of order in the passage uh, for a reason that may become clear to you, but the first one I want you to note is in verse 17. In answering the question that they have asked, he refers to the communion in verse 16, the cup and the bread, and then he says, verse 17, because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, that might sound odd to you, but note that he says there's one bread. We are one body, so we partake of one bread. So he has this bread, body, bread, and he refers to one bread. It means one loaf. The idea is that apparently in the early church there was one loaf that they used. It would be unleavened, presumably, but it would still form a loaf, and it would have been some size, and that's what the host would break. It's what is used in the celebration of the Passover. Now, that one fact has led to all kinds of confusion and disagreements about how communion is celebrated. For example, I remember talking with a Roman Catholic priest, a friend of Laura's family at one time, and And we were talking about communion, and he pointed out that Jesus used real wine, and he used one cup. And so when we celebrate communion, we should use real wine, and we should use one cup. Well, the real wine, I would prefer that myself, but I realize people have problems, so we use grape juice. And it is called the fruit of the vine. But the one cup, it is true, it refers to one cup, and it refers to one loaf. You'll note if you ever go to a Roman Catholic mass that... They use a single chalice on the table. However, since Vatican II, they will divide it up. Like after the blessing of the elements and all of that, they will pour it into a couple of different cups so that people can come forward in different lines and receive communion, and they might dip it in the cup at that point or take a drink out of the cup. And I pointed out to him, however, that while it is true that they maintain the symbolism of one cup, there's also a symbolism of one loaf. In the Bible, right? Because there is one bread, we or many are one body, so we all partake of the one bread. Uh, there's one loaf, but in the Catholic Church, they don't have one loaf. They use individual hosts, they're called, individual little um, pieces of unleavened bread, and a separate one that the priest holds and breaks that's larger. So what I'm saying is that everybody at some point breaks the symbolism somewhere. That's not the most important thing, however, I don't think. I personally maintain we should be as close 
to the New Testament as we can be. I have been in many services where there's a single cup used, even of very large groups of people. It's just passed from hand to hand and wiped in between. But that is not acceptable in our culture. And, and it, it seems like most people wouldn't participate if that were the case. That's not the significance that he's drawing from here. But what he's saying in verse 17, because there's one bread, we are one body because we all partake of the one bread. He's reminding us that the bread has a symbolic purpose. That is, we are one body in Christ. So we come and we all partake of a common bread or loaf. Now, what communion does, first of all, what the celebration of communion is, it's, it's an experience of belonging to the family of God. It's a time in which we share in the Father's table with the Father's people. It's not an individual experience. I don't even believe it is technically designed for a family to experience. It is the family of God's people when they meet in some setting to celebrate together because it is meant to picture with the one table, as referred to in this passage, it's meant to picture a sense of family solidarity. So we have always noted and we should note that communion has a horizontal element to it. It it points us to other people. It tells us I can't uh, worship God and be out of sorts in my relationship with other people. I need to seek to maintain the integrity of my relationships. I need to apologize at places where apology is needed. I need to confront at places where confrontation is needed. I can't just go on as far as it lies within your power, Paul says, live at peace with all people. Obviously, we cannot make people be at peace with us, but as far as it lies within our power, we're told, we need to seek to maintain the integrity of our relationships. Why is that? Because one important aspect of communion, one thing that it points to is the solidarity of God's people, the unity and harmony of God's people. It then functions in a sense like a family table. The children come to the family table and they expect the provision of the parents. The family table as it's developed in Western culture developed out of the idea of the Lord's table, which developed out of the Passover meal that was shared among the people of God in Israel. It's important that a family have a table large enough to seat everyone within the family. It's important that the family sit at some specific time around the table and share in that together. If you're Christian parents, please take seriously what I'm saying. You shouldn't view that as an optional thing, that people should come into the family and sit in front of the television and you feed them at various times and go out. That happens at times in the busyness of life. But I mean, the general experience is meant to be a sense of family solidarity that is fragmented in our society, but at least for a short time every day is reunited around the table. I'd have to say as a father, that is the one thing I miss about having children at home. My children live far away. Only at times like Christmas do we experience things like this. But the Lord's Supper is a corporate experience, a sign of healthy relationships, and a reminder that we have to maintain the integrity of the church. Now, he also says that it doesn't have something that points um, horizontally. It points vertically as well. So look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Now, the answer to those questions, of course, is meant to be yes, unequivocally. It is a sharing, in some sense, in Christ's death on the cross and the benefits of Christ's death on the cross. That is, when Christ died for our sins, we use the word that the New Testament uses, the word atonement. He made atonement for our sins. That is, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And when a person comes to God through Jesus, what we are doing is we're acknowledging that he satisfied God's wrath against our sin as individuals. And we find God's arms open wide to receive us because he has no more anger to pour out. It was poured out on his only son on the cross. Communion, obviously, has something to do with that. Now, we use the word sign because that's the word used in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, to refer to certain actions that seal a covenant. There are different ways and signs that are used under different covenants, but under the new covenant, Jesus said when he held up the cup of blessing, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he was giving to that a sign significance. It pointed to something, in this case, to his blood. His blood is referring not just to the physical fact that he bled, but to a sacrificial, bloody, violent death. And the same thing with his body being broken. Now, celebrating that together and experiencing the benefits of Christ's atonement is done in so many different ways in the world. We all come from many different backgrounds. You would have experienced this in different ways, seen it in different ways. So it might be difficult to understand, but let me say a few words about it. One thing is, there are basically two types of worship experiences. Excuse me. You might call them high church and low church. And uh, you might call them, when it comes to communion, realism and symbolism. Uh, Realism is represented probably most purely by the Roman Catholic Church. I'll describe that in a minute. Symbolism is uh, experienced in varying ways uh, among those who are not Roman Catholic, or the Protestant churches in general. And um, I think it's important for us to understand what different churches do and why they do it. I don't mean to pick on Roman Catholics at all. My wife's family is very Roman Catholic. I took the instruction in the Catholic Church when I was younger. But I think we need to, and I think we need to be very respectful when we talk to our Catholic friends and relatives and neighbors uh, about matters of faith. I think we need to be very understanding, seeking to grasp what it is they really are saying before we respond to it, which sometimes is hard to do. But we also need to be clear, and it's disrespectful to pretend there aren't any differences. And one of those differences really does have to do with communion. What the Roman Catholic Church teaches is that when Jesus held up the bread at the Last Supper, and he said the words, this is my body, he meant that literally. And, and so they believe that when the church celebrates communion, when the priest uh, recites the words of institution, that is the words that are found in the Gospels when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, this is my body is broken for you, and so forth. When a priest does that, the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, are changed, they're they're um, trans, transubstantiation is the word. I was trying not to use such a big word. Thank you. Um, <laughs> they change their substance. 
they change their substance. And what they, they actually say is that the bread still looks like bread. It has the outward appearance of bread. It still tastes like bread. However, really and literally, it is the body of Christ, the physical, literal body of Christ. Same with the cup. It is changed into the physical, literal blood of Christ, even though it still looks like and tastes like uh, wine. And uh, they, they would argue, listen, that's what Jesus said. This is my body. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. Uh, one is that when Jesus said those words, this is my body, if you stop to think about it, he was at the Last Supper, and he was standing in his physical body holding the bread, and he was referring to something separate from his physical body, saying, this is my body. You could take that even a little bit further. You could note that Christ's physical body, according to Scripture, is not present everywhere in the universe. His physical body which he still has. He is still the God-man. His physical body is located at the right hand of the throne of God. His physical body is not ubiquitous. It's not present everywhere. Spiritually, by his spirit, God is present everywhere. Jesus is present everywhere by his spirit, but that's a different matter. So it's not possible for his body to be localized at the right hand of the throne of God and to be present in a piece of bread in many different places on the earth at the same time. That may sound very technical to you, but there's really a problem that I find to be more significant. It's confusing the idea of a sign and the reality that the sign points to. It's taking the sign to be the reality. And here's what I mean. Let's say you're invited to a wedding. Bill and Sally are getting married, and they want you to come to their wedding. Their wedding is at a metro park that's huge. And in this metro park, there are a lot of different places where it could be, and they're hard to get to. You have to take a right and a left and a right and any number of patterns in order to get there. And let's say, in my illustration at least, GPS won't work. You ever had that experience? There are some places where you can put it in, but you're going to end up at a place where maybe you can see what you're trying to get to in a distance, but you can't get there. It's not going to work. And so what they tell you is we're going to put signs and the signs are going to tell you how to get there. Now, you drive to the park. You want to go to the wedding. You're looking forward to it. When you see a sign and the sign tells you to turn right, your attention is not focused on the sign. The sign is a means to get to the location, right? So you don't stop at the sign and get out and pick up the sign and kiss it and say, I'm going to frame this sign and put it up in my house. This is so important. This is Bill and Sally's wedding. Well, no, it isn't Bill and Sally's wedding. It's an effective pointer to Bill and Sally's wedding. And if rather than picking it up and doing something with the sign, you obey what the sign says, you will get to Bill and Sally's wedding, and then you enjoy the wedding, right? The sign, if it's accurate and it's effective, gets you to the location that the sign points to, but the sign itself is not the reality. How that relates to the Lord's Supper is this. Covenant signs are designed to be pointers that point us to a spiritual reality. In fact, I would say they do more than point us. They effectively convey us to that reality if we obey them. In other words, there's nothing about taking communion that gives you a relationship with God. It doesn't cause what it points to. There's nothing about celebrating communion that makes you forgiven. But the sign points to forgiveness and the source of forgiveness, which is the body and blood of Christ. And if 
You take the sign in faith that is obeying, that it effectively points you to the reality of salvation. You have the reality the sign points to. Now, this is a point where I'd have to say, if realism says too much when you think about communion, symbolism can say too little. Some people think of communion as only a symbol, kind of like a cross. You know, we have a cross. But you understand the cross is different in that that is not a God-ordained symbol. Cross is spoken of in the New Testament, but it's never spoken of as a symbol that we ought to make and set up. There's nothing wrong with that. It's become the universal symbol of Christianity that almost all people in the world would recognize what it is referring to. However, God did not ordain the cross to do anything for us. God ordained the bread and the cup to do something for us as we come in faith. And here's what I mean. At the Last Supper, Jesus himself held up the bread, and he said, this is the new covenant. Excuse me. Um, This is my body, which is broken for you. The cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you. In other words, what is connected with the bread and the cup is the very words of Jesus, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And what we have by God's appointment, when we take the bread and the cup in faith, when we look to God for the reality that the sign points to, is we are offered deeply in our hearts the experience of assurance that those words apply to us. Not because we take the bread and cup, but because by God's appointment, the bread and cup point to that reality. Now, you see, we can't confuse the sign and the reality. The sign doesn't make the reality true. It doesn't make it happen automatically. Just because a person comes up and takes communion, it doesn't make them experience or have with God anything that it points towards. But when they come obediently, anticipating that God, by his word, assures them of eternal life, and he gives them a tangible assurance of that, then they experience a provision not only at God's table, that they're one of his people, they share that in our solidarity as a family, but we share the benefits of the atonement. That is, each one of us has allowed the opportunity to feel in our hearts this applies to me as an individual. I am forgiven because of what Jesus did. I am set free from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. I am able to live for God, and I want to rely on him to do that in me and through me. In other words, a person says, I possess what Jesus died to give me. That's what communion points to. So you see, communion points to a horizontal element. That is, we experience solidarity with the people of God. We recognize like the children around the table, we are not alone here in our pilgrimage through this world. We are connected with others who love God and want to follow him. And then it also points us to Christ, but particularly to the benefits of Christ's death. That is atonement for our sins. It points us to that, and it effectively grants us the sense that what it points to is true for us as we come in faith, relying on the word of God. And then there's a third thing he refers to in this passage that also has a horizontal focus. He goes into this this, uh, reference not simply to communion, but to the idea of a fellowship meal. He refers to the fact that for some of them that would have been true 
at least before Christ, because they were Jewish people. Consider, he says, verse 18, the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, what he means is this. In the system of worship given under the Old Covenant before the coming of Christ, there were different sacrifices offered. One of them is called a fellowship offering or a peace offering, it's sometimes called. That was an offering that a worshiper brought, and often it was brought voluntarily, though there were reasons why it needed to be brought at at points. And it wasn't simply pointing to atonement. It wasn't simply only pointing to the fact that God would forgive sins through the death of a substitute. It was also pointing beyond that to fellowship with God. A peace offering was one in which the worshiper would come, bring it to a priest at the temple, and the priest would have the worshiper lay his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. And that involved a symbolic transfer of sin. The the worshiper was saying, symbolically, I am transferring my sin and guilt to this animal. The animal was then sacrificed, and it was offered on the altar. Part of it was entirely burned up. Part of it was given to the priest, but the largest part of it was given back to the worshiper to sit in the temple precincts together with his family and friends and enjoy the benefits of the fellowship meal. Paul would have known this growing up, would have experienced it at times. And he he refers to that, and he says, when someone does that, when a person comes in Israel to the temple and they share in the the meal after a, a peace offering, aren't they participating in what the peace offering does? They're sharing together in God's willingness to receive the worshipers who come to him through a sacrifice. And then he he goes on, and he refers not just to Israel, but this same idea, of course, was found in pagan temples. What do I imply then, he says, that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Now, here's the point. That same idea, even if they were Gentiles, they could connect with because they knew what it was to go to the pagan temples and to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and job promotions and deliverances of some kind, to celebrate that together. And in, in the same way, he says that God designed this for his people under the old covenant. Pagans are trying to do the same thing. And, and what am I implying? He's saying, well, I've already told you, Paul is essentially saying, there's no reality to idolatry. You can, eat, you can eat food that has been offered to idols because there's no real Zeus. He doesn't somehow taint the offering when it's made, right? However, he wants to add one thing for their realization. While there's no reality to false worship, there's nothing behind it that makes it effective. There is, according to Paul, demonic activity behind it. There is a real attempt by evil spiritual forces to use false worship to turn people's hearts away from God. In other words, what is happening for a worshiper in a pagan temple is they are experiencing fellowship, koinonia, with evil spiritual forces, though they may not realize it. When they go and participate in a pagan festival, and that's why he says, with No qualification. You should not go to idols, temples, and worship. But then I want you to note, he says, I do not 
want you to be sharers, participants with demons. I do not want you to have communion with demons. You cannot come to the Lord's table and the table of demons. In other words, what he's saying is, in worship, when we come to God at his table through the sacrifice that Christ made, we experience not only the benefits of Christ's death, but I guess we would say we experience a sense of communion with God himself, fellowship with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the bread and cup points us to an experience. It points us to an experience in which we feel the favor and the blessing of God. That's what we long for, isn't it? We taste it sometimes when we sing together. Have you had that experience ever? Singing and you realize you are transported momentarily at times beyond yourself. You realize you're in the presence of God as you're singing with other people. What we taste at that time is what communion holds out to us in the same, though in a more intensive sense. Because now it involves a tangible element that we take. By God's appointment, the bread and the cup become means by which we eat and drink in the very presence of God. I know this is This is mysterious, but what it's saying is the celebration of communion points us to heart fellowship with God. Again, the sign shouldn't be confused with the thing that it points to. Taking communion doesn't give you heart fellowship with God automatically. Taking communion is an opportunity to come to God in faith using the elements that he has designed and find by his grace that you're in his presence and you experience his power. Now, if I knew a way to cause that to happen, if anyone knew a way to make that a reality in people's experience, how different the church would be. You know, I'm very, uh, very reserved. I said a couple of weeks ago, my brother's dying, and it's really bothering me. You know, over... Christmas, a lot of things happened, but one was that my brother had gone up to the fact that he's dying. We had a family meeting with the oncologist, and, and the oncologist told him, you can't continue chemotherapy. And it was very difficult, but it was also very freeing. It's like everybody's now on the same page, everybody in the family. My two sisters and I and my brother's sons and his wife were all... We're all saying the same thing. We understand what it is we need to move towards. But one of the things that's made me realize is how I came from a family that is so reserved. And I am so reserved. And I sometimes think, if I weren't so reserved, and I had led this church for 30 years, would, would people's experience be deeper? Because I want it to be deeper. And I really don't know the answer to that question. I do know this. You can't manufacture it. I can't pretend it's something I'm not because I want people to feel emotionally different. It's only as I get closer to God that I'm able to share things to make that a reality. But wouldn't it be something as when we meet together as God's people, when we celebrate communion, there was this sense of the presence of God, this sense that, that our lives are really caught up in his purposes So that it wasn't just something that we went through and then we go out and we hope that it was good for us. It's something that we feel like, I want my life to go in a different direction because of all this. We should pray that that's a reality.
Well, those are the three things communion points to. It points us to each other, the solidarity of God's family. It points us to the benefits of Christ's death, the atonement, in which we share together and say, I possess as individuals, I possess the benefits of what Jesus came to do. Forgiveness, cleansing, new life, those are mine because of Jesus. And it's also a point where God points us to fellowship with himself. A rich experience of his favor, his blessing that we long to have. Let's pray that that will be a reality for us. Our gracious God and Father, again, as we come before you, we thank you so much that you are a God of infinite mercy. Well, no, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Your mercy is not infinite. Else everyone would be saved. No, you are a God of compassion and of great mercy. You call us to yourself. Thank you. Those of us who are able to say from the bottom of our hearts, we know what it means to have forgiveness and peace with God. We know what it means to experience the presence of God. We don't have it all the time, but we know what it means, and we long to experience it more deeply. So as we go out into life and relationships, we are not constantly hampered by this sense that we are looking to other people to get something. We're not constantly saying to ourselves, I have to have these people like me because I'm not really sure if that's true, if I'm really likable, or, or I, I have these people to think that I'm really important or competent or whatever it is, and so I've got to prove that because I'm not really sure if that's true. But instead, we knew because we were filled up by you with what it means to be truly accepted and valued. We found that the source of that was not simply other people, so that when we love other people, we might love them more freely and purely. And we long for that. We pray that even today as we celebrate communion together, it might be something that points us to that and allows us to move deeper into it. Praise Jesus. Amen.